So as we jump into our time of teaching, again, if you're here for the first time, I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take a few minutes here at the top just to bring you up to speed in the series we've been in since the beginning of the fall. What we've been doing is we've been in a series called Sent Life on Mission. And this series has been a study in one of the biggest books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. Now, Acts was written by a man named Luke, and we know a few key things about Luke's life. We know that he was an educated man. Luke was a doctor by trade. He was also a writer and an author. We know that Luke was a Gentile, meaning he wasn't of Jewish descent. We also know that Luke had, was a Christ follower, genuinely loved and pursued Jesus in his life. And finally, we know that Luke was a close personal friend of the Apostle Paul. And so what Luke is doing through his biblical writings is he's writing to a gentleman named Theophilus. And what he's doing for Theophilus over two volumes is Luke is doing a carefully researched account of the beginning of the movement of Jesus. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and it accounts the birth of Jesus through his ministry, death, and resurrection. The second volume is the book we're in now, the book of Acts, which talks about after Jesus ascends, the beginning of his new movement, the birth of the church, the first 30 years-ish after Jesus, in which the Gospel begins spreading in Jerusalem and eventually into the Roman Empire from Jew to Gentile. If you've been with us over the last several weeks in this series, we use the analogy that think of Luke's writings as season one and season two of like a serialized television show. If you think of a show like Lost or 24 or anything like that, you need to have seen what came before to really understand the impact and the climax when the, in the later seasons, correct? So Luke's writings were meant to be read together. As we study Acts, it's building off of what he started in Luke. And so last week, we took a detour and we went back into season one to look at Luke's account of Christmas. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and go back to Acts chapter four. And what Luke is going to do is he's going to do something similar to what he did in Acts chapter two, in that he is going to give us a window into the life and the values of the early movement of Jesus, the church. And what we're also going to see is how this value plays out in the midst of one of their first major conflicts as a church. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. If you're following along in your note sheet, there's a section titled, Two Views on Giving. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 32. So as you're turning there, again, there's two pieces to our scripture, to our scripture this morning. The first piece is the way chapter 4 ends, which is, again, giving us an insight into the early Christ followers' lives. So starting at verse 32, here's the, here Luke writes, all of the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of the possession, their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, let's stop right there and unpack that a little bit. Like I've been saying, this is tied to the picture we get in chapter 2. If you remember the teachings from chapter 2, the life of the church after Pentecost, is that when Jesus is Messiah, excuse me, as when we acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, when we accept him into our lives, that changes everything. It's not a momentary, oh, that was fun for a Sunday afternoon, but it's a radically changing thing, not just for us individually, but for us collectively as a community. And so the way that we 
now go about community is radically different. And so there in verse 32, Luke describes them as being one in heart and in mind. Now that's not indicating that they were cookie cutter, the same exact type of person. But it's saying that their community, their friendship, their fellowship was built on the same purpose. The purpose of Christ's followers is to grow to reflect the character of Jesus. And so that was the foundation that tied this community together. Even though they were all Jewish, they were different types, they were different believers from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic stories, different uh, areas, different areas in Israel. But what bound them all together was the fact that we are new in Jesus. And so there's many ways in which the church displayed this new community. And in fact, the word I'm going to come to often is the word responsibility. They didn't see each other as just people anymore. They didn't see each other as just people we see at church, so to speak. Because of Jesus, they now saw each other as family in the best sense of the word. And so because they now saw each other as family, they felt a responsibility to their family. And that played out in numerous different ways. This one example Luke gives us is in the way of giving when it came to our possessions. They no longer viewed their possessions as just solely theirs. Now, Luke makes the point, and this is a misconception often of the early church. Sometimes we believe that to be a Christ follower, the requirement was you had to sell everything you had, you had to give everything to the apostles, and then you lived together in like a commune type situation. What we see is this something radically different and extraordinary unity when it came to their giving, that it was not required to give up your stuff. It was a completely voluntary experience, but they were doing it because they saw a need and they wanted to help family. See, Luke even writes as he, uh, in, in the verses we went through, as they saw need from time to time, he uses this because they're not vilifying people that owned houses. They're not vilifying people that had stuff. They're not vilifying the people that even were financially well off. But what he's displaying is that their value system was now radically different. See, before, their value system was very much like our society. If you had the right money, if you had the right stuff, if you had the right status, then you would be fulfilled. Then you've made it. What he's showing is that in this community, that doesn't matter to them anymore. The stuff is just the stuff. What matters now is family. And again, they felt a deep responsibility to one another. It was amazing because they would see a need and rise up to meet that need, or they would just in their own personal prayer times be praying and feel the Lord stirring them, and they would preemptively meet needs that, I don't see an immediate need, but eventually somebody's going to be on hard times. So here, give this where you see fit. It's a radical unity that we see in this new, um, in this new community. And now what Luke is going to do as he, as he closes this picture is he's going to give us an example, one of many, but he's going to give us a specific example of how this has been playing out. So if you look at verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, this is one of many examples of what's going on in this community, but it highlights, again, how they view fulfillment in Jesus and no longer in their possessions. As I've been alluding to many times, their culture wasn't that much different than ours when it came to the view of possessions and finances. So if you owned property, if you were a landowner in that culture, that gave you status. 
That gave you, um, that gave you, that gave you the sense that you were better than other people that didn't. And so if you were a mogul, so to speak, if you owned property, you would not give that up because that meant that it would sacrifice your status. And here's an example of Barnabas, who we will see again later on in Acts as he goes on to be one of Paul's first missionary partners. And the message he's saying is the message that much of the church is saying, that that social status, the view from the outside world, that doesn't matter to me anymore. What matters to me is family. What matters to me is what matters to Jesus. Family matters to Jesus, and now that matters to me. And he's not just lip servicing it, he's putting it in action. And one quick note about Barnabas is his nickname itself. If you think about nicknames, so often nicknames are designed to talk about how awesome we are. The great one, the good-looking one, this and that. Rarely are the nicknames about other people. And yet his nickname, his name was Joseph, and they nicknamed him how he served his family, by encouraging them, by speaking into their lives, by being a part of it. And so that's a positive picture. And now what's going to happen is immediately Luke is going to transition and show us now that he's kind of set the foundation for how they viewed giving and the responsibility to one another, he's going to show us one of the first major conflicts in the early church, again, revolving around this issue of giving. So as we continue into chapter 5, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So let's unpack that a little bit. Now remember, Luke, through Acts, is giving us a highlight reel. There's a lot of details that we don't have that maybe they knew back in the original audience. But when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, the reality is that there's actually much about them we don't know. We don't know what their spiritual life was like. We don't know what their interaction with the church community had been like before this. Here's what we do know, though, and it's an interesting note. The way Luke introduces them is that he doesn't introduce them as outsiders. He doesn't say there's a new, there's these new members or these people just showed up that wanted to be part of this. He's implying that they've been a part of their community. They've been a part of the early church. And then what he tells us is that they had a scheme. They owned property. They sold off that property. They kept some of that money for themselves and then went to the apostles and gave the other piece of that money, but they were going to claim that that was all the money that they received from it. Now, what's interesting is whenever we read a biblical account about somebody that makes, makes a poor decision, and if you're familiar with the Ananias and Sapphira account, you know this isn't going to end well. But it's easy for us to vilify those people. The one thing we don't want to do is relate to them. But the, theft, but the thing is, when we really dig into it, there is some relatable issues with Ananias and Sapphira. If you're familiar with their account, have you ever stopped to ask why? Why are they deceiving the way they are? What are they hoping to gain out of this? And again, I can't say with full certainty because Luke doesn't give us that. But it's thought, many scholars believe that it's likely that it had to do with envy. See, the church was proud and honoring the people that were sacrificing in the name of the Lord. The church was probably making a big deal, rightfully so. You know, as people wanted to say anonymous, but man, look what they're doing. And don't raise your hand, but have you ever felt a temptation to ever present yourself spiritually as better than you are? 
Have you ever felt a temptation to not let people know when it came in your walk to Jesus that you're human? Have you ever wanted people to see you as this Christian or this Christ follower who has it all together? Have you ever basically deceived to portray that image? As much as it bugs me, now they become relatable, don't they? Now we sit there and go, man, they must have been feeling this social pressure. But again, in those temptations, we have to make a choice, authenticity or rebellion. And we're seeing that they're choosing rebellion. And so as their account continues in verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So let's stop right there. We don't know fully how Peter saw through the deception. Some believe that it was prophetic through the Holy Spirit. Others believe that because Peter had been shady in his own life, he could just tell when somebody was lying. But the reality is, Peter called him out on it. And what's interesting is when Peter uses the word filled, and if you have your Bible and a pen, if you have an app capable of highlighting, I would, rec- I would encourage you to highlight the word fill. Because in the Greek, that's the word that the New Testament uses to describe what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's not just like a droplet of the Holy Spirit, is it? It's a complete covering And so what Peter, by using that word intentionally, he's saying, you have been filled by Satan. You have been filled by the enemy. Now, he's not talking about a possession in which that Ananias had no control over his actions. He's indicting Ananias for having responsibility in this. He's saying, where have you given the enemy a foothold? Where have you given him an open door that he's allowed him to fill you in this And again, Peter lays out the severity of the charge. Something else I'd like you to highlight is the end of verse 4. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Peter is making it very clear. Ananias, this has nothing to do with me. It's not about lying to me. It's about the fact that this is a community built by the presence of God. The presence of God is here, and that presence is what rules and leads this family. The fact that you have allowed your heart to become deceitful, to lack integrity, to have hypocrisy in it, the fact that you would be willing to come into this community where God's presence resides and to lie means that you're not lying to us, but you're lying to God himself, and you're doing it to his face. It's a heavy charge, isn't it? But Peter is calling out the severity of what's happening. And then, as we continue, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and he buried him. Now, what happened next was a shock. Because understand, understand this, nothing in what Peter said or did is, the, is, did is the cause of Ananias' death. This was a divine judgment. Peter didn't sit there and go, Ananias, for deceiving us, I want you to die, fire come down from heaven and burn you up. In fact, and again, I can only speculate, I'm sure Peter was upset and wanted to punch him in the face. But my guess is that Peter wasn't thinking like, man, like God, you better kill this guy for what he's doing. It's likely that Peter was as shocked as anybody else as what happened next. 
this act of divine judgment. And what does that act begin to tell us? It begins to show us something about God's value, that God values the unity of his family. If you're a parent, you know that nobody messes with your kids, right? You know that if somebody does, you feel that anger, you feel that rage. There are times when we need to make good decisions or we end up in the news for getting into a fist fight at, like a, at a baseball game or something. But you know it, right? I remember uh, a few years ago, my oldest is, a, is just about four now. But a couple years ago, when he was about one and a half, I dropped him off at a daycare. And one of, one of his friends ran up to him, and he was so happy to see this friend. And his friend was just playing with him, as kids do. And he was playing him by starting to punch him. And I saw, like, all of a sudden, my son's expression went from happy to, like, really scared and upset. And me, being a rational 30-year-old dad at the time, I grabbed the counter, and I wanted to jump over and tackle that kid. <laughs> now, I didn't, thankfully, because I'd probably be sitting in jail right now had I done this. But why did I do that? Because somebody was messing with family. And I don't mean to take lightly what the Lord is doing, but it shows us his high view of family through this. So this is shocking. And the account continues in verse 7. About three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. See, it was common in, that, in, in Middle Eastern culture, particularly because they're in such a warm climate, for burials to happen very immediately within 24 hours. And so we don't know if any attempt was made to communicate with Sapphira. We don't know what she was up to. All we know is she has no idea what has gone on beforehand. Peter was given a little bit of time to process because, again, sometimes we have this belief that for somebody like Peter, when something like this happens, that they're just like, it's par for the course. This stuff happens all the time. God is always doing these miraculous things. The reality is for Peter, it's shocking too. And we see that the Lord gave him a breather, so to speak. But now that Sapphira is walking in, he's realizing something. He's going to give her an opportunity to avoid what happened to her husband because he's fairly confident that the same thing could. And so as, as, as Sapphira walks in in verse 9, Peter, or excuse me, at the end of verse, verse 8, he says, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, said Peter. She said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So as we stop right there, again, nothing that Peter did caused this. But just three hours earlier, he had seen this exact scenario play out. And so he was confident he knew how this was going to end. And so, verse 11, as we wrap up our scripture, great fear seized the whole church. Heck yeah, it did, right? <laughs> like, wouldn't you be afraid? This is the craziest church service ever. Just came in to sing and have cookies in the fellowship hall and people are dying as you go in. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And before we leave our scripture, I'd like you to underline two key words in verse 11. The first one is that word fear. Now, in the original language, as it talks about fear, it does connotate the emotional response we think about, that people are dying, God is moving, we're seeing judgment, this is scary. But there's another aspect of fear that I don't think we often focus on when it comes to what the Bible means by fear. See, what is also meant when the Bible talks about fear is a deep reverence for who God is. See, the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament has been teaching this since the beginning. 
that fear the Lord your God, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. And what it's not saying is that we as Christ followers are designed to live in complete and utter terror every day of our lives. But when you have a reverence, it means that you know that God is bigger than we are, that you know that he knows better than I do, and also that you know that when God says something is true, he means it. And from the very beginning in the garden, even before Adam and Eve made that fatal mistake, what did he tell them? If you eat from that tree, you surely will die. Several life group sessions ago, one of my life group leaders was sharing about her parents and she was sharing uh, as a compliment to her parents that one of the ways they disciplined in their house was that her parents wouldn't constantly repeat things. They would say one thing as a guideline, and if that guideline was broken, then they would act. So an example she gave is if, you know, the, the stereotypical, hey, if you guys don't calm down, I'm going to turn around and take us back home. She would say it once, and if the rule got broken, she would just calmly follow through. And she was sharing that as a positive thing, too, because you know what it taught us as kids? It taught us that, our parent, that what our parents say is true. It taught us that they mean their words. And that's true of the Lord as well, as we look into this. When we fear and we have a reverence for him, it means that we believe when he says that sin leads to death and destruction, but that he leads to life and the best life possible. And the second word I asked you to highlight or underline is the word church. See, since chapter two, we've been talking about the early church, right? But what's interesting is this is the first time that actual word has popped up in the, in the book of Acts. And in the Greek, the word that's translated for church is a word called ekklesia. Now, in their culture, the word ekklesia was a, mod, was a common term. It simply meant, meant an assembly of different types of people. But in the New Testament, this early movement of Jesus adopted that word and redefined it in a powerful way. See, to them, the ecclesia was, a, was the definition of the character of the people that were gathered. To them, the ecclesia, the church, was a gathering of people who had been saved by Jesus and are now devoted to becoming more like him, to reflecting his character imperfectly, but each and every day. So do you see that as we're given this word for the first time, that the heart and definition of church is not the building, it's not the stuff, even though these are blessings, it's the character of the people. So you and I are the ecclesia, not because we're sitting in this room, but because of our pursuit of Jesus. And so what we're seeing again is that the ecclesia carries a lot of weight in the eyes of God. The ecclesia is family, and they have a responsibility to God and a responsibility to one another, the greatest commandments. And so that's our scripture for the day. And as we unpack this, what I want to do is very often in the account of Ananias and Sapphira, we get, really, we get very much caught up in the giving piece, like let's give to each other, which is a good thing. And we get caught up on the fact that they lied to one another, which again are important lessons. But those are the overflow of a root problem. And so what I want to do with the time we have left is I want to examine that root problem and what we can learn from, the, from their account. So there in your note sheet, there's a section titled, Struck Down the Main Principle. And if I had to sum up their account, what we can learn in one word, it would be this, and this is your fill-in, purity. Purity. Now, let me ask this. Have you ever um, said a word 
or heard a word so many times that it stops sounding like a real word? You remember that scene in Tommy Boy with Chris Farley and David Spade where they're talking about the word roads and they're saying it over and over again and it's like roads, 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 you know, it just sounds weird. In those situations, what has happened to the word? Well, the word's lost meaning. It's lost meaning to you. It doesn't get your attention anymore. We've become numb to it. We can ignore it and move on. It's kind of like this, if I can illustrate it in this way. I was in sixth grade when um, the 94 earthquake happened here in Northridge. And I remember, as those of you that lived through that and grew up through that as well, when that earthquake happened in the middle of the night, that caught your attention, didn't it? That was scary. Stuff's falling down. We ran outside. And then after the earthquake happened, what came next? Aftershocks. Strong aftershocks. And they were frequent, and they kept happening over and over and over again. Every time they happened, as a young kid, you're like, oh my gosh. But also adults, I'm sure, it's like, we're going to die. Now, here's what's interesting. Not even 24 hours later, later that day, I remember being in the living room with my siblings, and we were all like laying on the couches and the floor, and we were taking a nap. Now, the house was still shaking multiple times every couple of minutes. But what had happened to us, we had been living in these aftershocks for, so, for many hours now that we just became numb to them. They went from something that made me think that I'm going to die to something that was annoying me by interrupting my nap. The house would shake and I'd be like, huh, whatever. And that was true for several weeks. I became numb to it. And the reason why I illustrate it like this is for many of us, that happens with the words and the themes of Scripture. That maybe we've grown up hearing certain words of Scripture numerous times in teachings and in Bible studies and in life groups. Maybe even if we haven't grown up in church, there are certain words that we've heard no matter where we go that we deem as religious words. And for many of us, these words have simply lost their meaning. They don't impact us. They, have, they, haven't, they don't get our attention. For many of us, it's because we just assume we've got it. We understand what it is and we move on. And so what we need to do is we need to always take a step back and we need to reclaim the power of these words by redefining them within the context of the Bible. Biblical words are not there for me to define how I seem fit. They're there for Scripture to define as God sees fit. And so when we always go back to the context, it always reinvigorates these words. And so that leads us to the word purity. If you've been in church culture for any length of time, Usually, the word purity is brought up in the context of sexual purity, of having a healthy spiritual sex life within marriage. And hear me clearly, that's a very important aspect of purity. But for many of us, where the word has lost its meaning is that's all we see purity as being. While that's an overflow of purity, that's not the totality or the foundation of purity. The foundation of purity is the charge to live a clean life. The foundation of purity is the charge to reflect the character of Jesus. But the definition of purity is very much the definition of what it means to truly be blessed, and that's this. Because of sin, we, were, we broke our relationship with God, and we were separated from our father and our family. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he washed over all of our sins with his perfect purity. And so what does it mean that we now have purity in our lives? It does not mean that we are now perfect beings, but it means, and here's the definition, that we can now live in right relationship with God and with one another. Purity means pursuing and living in right relationship with God and with one another. See, 
It's this definition of purity is where the title of today's message, Struck Down, comes from. Sin, separation, what condemned us, that's what struck us down in our previous lives. But because of finding new life in Jesus now, because of him living in us, we have the ability to strike down that which would make us impure. And so purity means reflecting the character of Jesus. Impurity means the opposite of who Jesus is. Deceit, arrogance, bitterness, hate, hypocrisy, a lack of integrity. And impurity, if you have a heart of impurity, that is destructive to your relationships. Impurity segregates, impurity destroys. And so now when we see the account of Ananias and Sapphira, what do we see happened? Well, the enemy got a foothold in their lives. They had probably been, I don't personally, my guess personally is that it's not that they made this jump all of a sudden, but they started giving in to temptation after temptation. Because at the point where we come into this account, they're standing in their ecclesia, and their desires, their, their status, their envy is more important to them than God himself. And so what is the enemy trying to do in that moment? The enemy has filled their hearts to bring in impurity, to bring in destructive factors to tear apart the family that God has put back together. If you think about it in a cooking analogy, I'm not a good cook, so I mess up all the time. And one of the ways I mess up, have you ever had that situation where you put just a little too much of something and it wrecks a majority of what you're cooking? Well, the lesson from Ananias and Sapphira is that it doesn't take much impurity to harm the ecclesia. See, one of the pictures I don't think we often grasp about purity is that we sometimes think of purity and we kind of picture it as being like this fragile vase or something along those lines. The reality is purity is the weapon Jesus used to defeat the devil. What did he do on the cross? He wiped all of our sins clean and pure. And so the enemy is still waging war against the family of Jesus. And his primary weapon isn't to come storming the gates with army, but to destroy the ecclesia from the inside through impurity. I like how John Stott puts it in your note sheet. We have now seen that if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. He has not given up the attempt, whether by the hypocrisy of those who profess but do not practice, or by the stubbornness to those who sin but do not repent. Again, I don't know what Ananias and Sapphira's life was like before this. I don't know what their faith was like before this account. But I do know that when Peter says you have lied to God, another way of putting that is you are taking a shot at destroying the church. And that cannot stand. And so we see God's value in this. We see that we are been saved to be a people who pursue purity. And again, that's the character of God. To pursue purity means that we value that which God values and our heart breaks for that which breaks God's heart. His heart values the unity of his family. His heart breaks when his family is disunified and at war with one another. And so what we need to do to apply this lesson to our lives is we need to begin to change the way we see each other. We need to begin to change the way we see this concept of spiritual family and to be people that are pursuing purity together. Now, sometimes when you hear something like this, some people light up because they get excited and go, great, now I get to tell a lot of people how they're doing their lives wrong. And that's not what we're called to because if we want to be a church of purity, it starts with us checking ourselves first. 
Even in the words of Jesus, pull the plank out of your eye first. It doesn't mean accountability doesn't have a place. It doesn't mean truth doesn't have a place. But we need to start internally because we've created a little bit of a mess as Christ followers. There is an image and a stereotype of the church in the world that the one thing the church is really good at, the one thing they focus their energy on more than anything is fighting. That we fight with the outside world and we especially fight with one another. We've created the local church to be more like rival college teams where we sit there and root for our team and disparage the other one. Hey, if you go to that church down the street, they're not as holy as we have holier chairs than they do. Don't go over there because you're not going to meet the real Jesus. And where is this all coming from? It's impurity. It's ego. It's deceit. It's hypocrisy, and what's happening is we have gone to war with one another, and we expect people that don't know Jesus to come in and feel like they belong. How are they going to come into this family when they see us on different sides of camp fighting and hating each other? That is the opposite of purity. And so as we unpack this a little bit further, we want to take a look at our own hearts first. And so there in your notes, there's a section titled Struck Down, Two Takeaways. And what I want to do is I want to give you two big picture ways that we as individuals can begin pursuing purity for individually and also preserving the purity of the church. And your first villain is this, purity is the foundation of family. Purity is the foundation of family. The first step to truly be the ecclesia that we were called to be is to change the way we look at one another. We need to go from simply, these are the people that sit near me or far away from me, to seeing brothers and sisters. And that's a change that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't come natural to us because of our sin nature. It's a journey and it's a process. But that family is the foundation. So how we start taking steps towards that is first of all, we need to strike down the way we've grown up and many of us culturally view family because culturally, family is not viewed positively. Just look at most television shows and movies that portray family. There are exceptions to this rule, but many of them portray family as a never-ending fight, as nothing but complete dysfunction, as we're legally bound to love each other, but we definitely don't like each other. When I was a kid and a teenager growing up with that image of family, I remember that the message I learned was, I'm going to win at family the day I get to escape it. The day I get to leave family is when things have finally worked out for me. And I mentioned this the last time I was with you just a few weeks ago, that not only have we devalued family, but the biggest way that the enemy through deceit is working to destroy this concept of family is in the fact that it's made family something we quit. When it gets hard, we're all about family when things are going well. But when something gets challenging, it's become synonymous. Well, you quit it. You quit a relationship or a marriage. You quit on your kids. You quit on your deep friendships. You quit on your church. It's amazing to me in the 13 years I've been in vocational ministry, how many times somebody has walked away from a church because of one offense. I was fine until they started cutting the donuts in half. (laughs) I can't stand for that, which, by the way, we'll never do, but at least not as long as I'm alive. But you see that we've seen it as something we quit. 
And so what we need to do as Christ followers is we need to not assume we understand what God means by family. We need to learn from him how he views family. Because again, even for many of us, if we're just going to have real talk, the way we grew up, our physical family was one of the most negative experiences of our lives. And so family comes across as like, why would I want that? And so we need to see from Jesus that he has a radical redefinition of it. And so how does Jesus view family? In the new community, Jesus does not view family as an obligation or a chore, but he views it as a blessing. He views it as a restored relationship. We don't have to be in family, okay? I gotta go there on Sunday and I have to deal with these people and I have to see them, but then I'm gonna leave the doors and we're done. But that's what family does is they share life together, whether they're present or not. That's what family does is they view each other with a sense of responsibility. And again, the big picture of that responsibility is that you are rooting for one another. You're wishing the best for one another. At its best, that's really what family does. And you know what's amazing about this family? The only thing that could make this family actually work is the supernatural love of Jesus. What else could combine such a group of different and diverse and imperfect people? Because is family easy? No. Is it messy and frustrating? Yes. Is it worth it? Eternally so. But we need to begin to see it from his point of view. I like how it's put in the Gospel of John there in your note sheet. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Reflect on that verse for a little bit. By actually being the family God has set us out to be, people will see that God is real and this is real in our lives. How do they see that? Because there's no other way this would work. We're too different we're too diverse, but if we're unified because of the love of Jesus and we are showing that love to one another, that gets people's attention. And so rather than people walking into a war zone, they're walking into a cozy living room. And so the question is, what steps can you take to begin viewing these people as family? And again, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But the first and most important step is that's how we pray. That's how we go to the Lord and say, hey, give me your eyes to see these people. So that's the first step. The second step, the second fill-in is purity charges us to preserve unity. If there's one thing human beings are really good at naturally, it's being divisive and argumentative. If you've ever had small kids, did you teach them to be divisive and argumentative to you? No, but they're really good at it, aren't they? <laughs> at a very young age. And it's really punishment for how you were to your parents as well. <laughs> but when I think about my life, when I reflect on my life, you know what I realize? I find a lot of categories and subjects and areas where I am highly divisive. And what I mean by highly divisive is there's a lot of areas in which I am absolutely right and people should conform to that. And if not, I will let you know. That's pretty much 90% of social media these days, isn't it? You're wrong. And let me tell you with a well-worded Facebook post, 
why you're wrong. And so what happens is we go to war over these things. We argue because, again, hey, in my eyes, the world revolves around me, and so you need to see why I'm right. And so what happens in that is I lose the ability to listen. I lose the ability to empathize because all I'm trying to do is win and defend my point. And if you think about it, we are naturally argumentative because we argue about everything. There's not a topic on earth we can't figure out a way to argue about. We argue about sports teams and not like joyfully, like we argue about sports teams. We will flat out sit there and go, I can't believe you love the Lord and love the Patriots because they are cheaters, which they are. <laughs> Drop the mic, we're done. How's you going? I argue, we argue about things like entertainment and movies. Have you ever been there in that discussion or argument with someone who, who clearly cannot see that the movie they love is just awful, but they're holding on to Sharknado so tightly? And you're like, come on. Like, how could they? We argue over food. You've heard, I started a war over the mushroom things. That thing blew up when I made fun of mushrooms. I made fun of kale and nobody said anything. And then I made fun of mushrooms. And I've had numerous, I'm going to go for a third one. I've had numerous arguments over eggplant with people. It's disgusting. And, and then people will argue with me and they're like, well, you're just, you're just eating it wrong. You got to like put cheese on it and sauce. And to which I retort back, so basically the only way to eat eggplant is for it to not taste like eggplant. I think I win in that conversation. <laughs> now we can, thank you. <laughs> got some hallelujahs going on in here. Now, I can laugh about these things, but it shows a good thing about us that we are a passionate people, Right? But that passion without the Lord guiding it can very much become a divisive thing because those are dumb examples, but they really can become divisive, right? Then what about the important things in life? What about the big things in life? What about things like politics? <laughs> I'm not taking a side on either, but the thing that breaks my heart more than anything in, in, in a political season is the fact that everywhere, all you see is in here is hate. It's a great reminder that it seems like as people, we've lost the ability to disagree with grace. So on something big like that, we, we're divisive. What about other issues such as um, the way you raise your kids? Parents, you understand this. It was really discouraging, and it still is when I first became a parent, that every kid is different, and when you finally feel like you found a rhythm when something's working well for your kid, there's no shortage of people or information that tells you what you're doing is absolutely wrong and going to destroy your kids. Because everybody has an opinion, right? What about things like what matters in life, career? What about areas like faith and religion? And as we transition into that idea of faith, what happens is that within the church, one of the things that really divides us is the fact that we take secondary issues. We have black and white primary issues as Christ followers. Mike quoted one at Christmas Eve, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God is creator. That is an issue. God's view of marriage, that is a black and white issue. But there are also many secondary issues that we as Christ followers go to war with. We create these boxes that this is what a true spiritual person looks like. And if you don't look like this, sound like this, if you deviate from this box, you are not spiritual and you are not saved. 
And so do you see what the enemy is doing is he is destroying the ecclesia by, by, de- by destroying our view of diversity. The church is diverse on purpose. God created us to be diverse because he is not boring. But when we begin to hate diversity on things like the secondary issues, again, not the primary, when we begin to go to war on the secondary, then what we make is we make a divisive camp. Let me, if I may, rattle the cage a little bit here. If we're supposed to be family, do you have a line in which if somebody crosses that line in here as Christ followers, you won't be family with them? Let me give you some examples where this happens, unfortunately, all too regularly. Is it a line of age? I don't want to be, I don't want to be family with older people or those adults, because what do they know? I don't want to be family with younger adults or teenagers, because what do they know? Is it an issue of race? We have to be blind to say, like, racial tensions have been tough lately in our nation. And there's heated opinions that come out on all sides of that. But does that bring up some of us like, no, 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 like, when I see that person, I just immediately come up with this idea, no, 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 not, not or with that. We use the example of politics. For some of us, it's I, I can't be family, I can't commune, I can't learn from somebody who is a hardcore Republican or somebody who views the Democrats in a favorable way and even votes Democratic. For some of us, it's the way we raise our kids. I, I can't be friends, I can't be family with somebody who wouldn't homeschool or somebody who wouldn't tend their kids to public school or somebody who wouldn't do private school. Why would, you, why would you do that? Do you see, I could go on and on and on, sadly, and I'm not saying this because I never do this, I'm saying this because I've been guilty of this as well. And we bring this into secondary theological issues. I can't be family, I can't be part of a church that believes that the earth is 6,000 years old. Or I can't be family, or I can't believe in a church that believes that God could have used theistic evolution as his form of creation. I can't be family or a church that plays that type of music, or their pastor wears sandals. Or I can't be part of this church if, you know what I'm talking about, I can't be part of this church if uh, this church or these people believe, don't believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are so active, or if they don't believe that they haven't been active and that was just a part of the church. And again, we could go on and on and on. But what happens is we have these lines. We have these things that keep us from being family. We have assumptions. I can't be family with people that are clean cut and wear suits to church. I can't be family with people that are in tattoos and piercings and love Jesus and come to church. I remember several years ago, Several years ago now, um, some, still some really, really good friends of mine, they're uh, in the entertainment industry, and I went to their wedding when they got married, and I was there with a couple of buddies from Rocky Peak, and um, one of them went to the restroom, and when he came back, his eyes were wide, and he had like, seen a ghost. I'm like, dude, what happened? He's like, man, like sincerely, God just kicked my butt and humbled me. And I'm like, weren't you just going to the bathroom? I'm like, what? <laughs> what happened? And he began to tell me that there was a line for the restroom. And behind him, he looked over his shoulder, and there was a gentleman in leather jacket, ripped up jeans, piercings, tattoo, blue hair, shaved on the sides. And he looked at him and immediately made an assumption of him. And as they're waiting in line for the restroom, this gentleman started small talking. He's like, well, how do you know the bride and groom? And he's like, oh, we, we, we went to church together. And this guy lit up. He's like, oh my gosh, you're a brother in Christ. 
and he begins telling him about how plugged in he is at his church and how much he loves the Lord and how plugged in. And so my friend came back and he's sitting there going, I looked at him and in one, one look assumed there's no way. And God told me that there's no such thing as a line in his eyes. What does it take, though, to build a unity of these different people? Supernatural. This is because we can't do it on our own. And this has been God's intent since the beginning. Have you ever really thought about the 12 disciples? I can't remember if I've said this up here or not. If I had, just indulge me. But for a lot of years on my Christian walk, I assumed that the 12 disciples were pretty much the same guy, just interchangeable. And then several years ago, I read a book called 12 Ordinary Men, which was an insight, a profile on the different disciples, and it blew my mind because it showed that they were radically different individuals. And let me illustrate by just picking five of them. So you had Peter, James, and John, who were the fishermen. They were probably, as a generalization, the average Jewish man in that culture, and that's who I assumed all the disciples were. And then Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew was hated in the Jewish culture because he was a tax collector. And he wasn't hated just because of his job, but because of how he did it and who he did it for. Matthew was working for the pagan Roman Empire. Matthew was ripping off his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters and made himself rich off of the deception of his family. He was considered a traitor to his race. And he's a disciple. Then you have a guy named Simon the Zealot. The Jewish nation did not think favorably of Rome, but zealots took it far. Zealots were considered terrorists of their time because they were not going to wait for Messiah to topple the Roman Empire. They were going to do it themselves. So to a zealot, you were praised by carrying out assassinations, by having Roman blood on your hands. Just in these five men, do you see this incredible diversity? And it blows my mind to think that these are the men, just a few of them, that Jesus intentionally called to be family together. Do you have some relatives around the ho- that come over for the holidays that you need to sit them on opposite ends of the table? <laughs> Can you imagine what some of their mealtime conversations were like? Can you imagine some of the heat and passion that came out? Can you imagine just the shock for Peter, James, and John to see Matthew walk into the apostles' cafeteria and go, really, that guy? Can you imagine the weirdness as they're walking around and here's the zealot working on an assassination blueprint or something? You're like, what is going on here? Can you imagine? I imagine there are probably times where they pleaded. One of like, we cannot do this with that guy. We cannot be part of a team with that guy. The church later on in Acts, and we're going to get to it, when the apostle Paul first walks into their midst, the guy that had been hunting them down and getting them executed, a terrorist in their eyes walks in and now wants to be family. But why do we have this example? Because on our own, we will never be unified. But it's only Jesus that can unify even the most diverse of people and bring them together. See, when we think about how the disciples started, it blows, it impacts deeply when you get to the book of Acts and you see them operating as a well-oiled machine. And I'm sure they still had individual personalities and differences but they learn to put everything at the wayside and to embrace family above all. So how do we begin to live out this change? I think there's two easy steps to this. One is an internal step and the other is external. The first, the internal, it goes back to what I said in the last point, 
if we truly want to be a people that are viewing each other as family, we need to pray that to be so. Several years ago, one of my favorite communicators, a pastor named Louis Giglio, used the phrase that, what would it change in your life if you began to truly see everybody in the church, in the outside world, as somebody that Jesus died for? If you want to see people that way, it starts by praying to see people that way because that's how God sees us. And the second step is an external step. Has God put somebody in your life that has differences to you? Small differences, big differences, even wrong differences. Has somebody put somebody in your life that he's asking you to listen to? See, I mentioned that when we become a divisive family, we lose the ability to listen. And listening to somebody isn't necessarily endorsing them, isn't letting go of our views, and again, we would never let go of biblical truth. But what's interesting is listening builds bridges so much faster and stronger than arguing. Is there somebody that's not like you, that the Lord is challenging and prodding, hey, listen to them. Try to, under, even if they're way wrong, try to understand where they're coming from. I like the quote on your note sheet, differences of opinion are inevitable among human personalities and can actually be helpful if handled well. Key phrase, handled well. But spiritual unity is essential. Loyalty, commitment, and love for God and his word. Without spiritual unity, the church could not survive. The foundation of the account of Ananias and Sapphira is one of purity. That as God's ecclesia, he sacrificed everything to bring his family back together. And so now our responsibility is joyfully is with grace, with love, to keep the unity together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out, and we're going to close with a song that we've sung before at Rocky Peak, but it's a powerful one. What defines the ecclesia? What's well, people that are aware that the presence of God, his spirit is with them. And so this is a song I adore where we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Fill this place. So let's pray. Father, I'm not up here teaching this because I've got this all down. I'm teaching this because I need this as much as anybody else. Father, my prayer for myself and for us as a community is that we truly begin to see one another as family. We truly begin to see one another as the ecclesia. We truly begin to embrace our diversity and our differences. That we stop going to war and start creating an atmosphere where people can come in as they are and, be, and see truth through that. Father, I think of your example in Scripture that you never betrayed truth. You never accepted sin. But you talked to the outcasts. You listened to them even when they were way wrong. You let Peter tell you that he knew better than you. You listened to all of this and still you preserved unity through relationship. And so, Father, we do not want to be the Ananias and Sapphira. And that's not an issue of giving or the needy. It's a heart issue. Father, give us the passion that you have to remove impurity from our lives, a joyful passion to remove anything that would impede us of reflecting your character, being more like you. Father, let us celebrate the joy that is we get to call each other brother and sister, and more importantly, we get to call you Father. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Hey, let's stand up. Let's stand up. You know, if you think about it, 
It really is the most epic storyline of all. Because of sin, we as a race destroyed our family. We were separated and scattered. And because of the love and grace of Jesus, God came after us. He died on the cross and washed over all of our sins with his purity. He liberated us from our bondage so that he could bring us home with him and with one another. And so as we leave this place, wherever your day, wherever your week, month, or wherever your new year takes you, let us be a people that are reflecting and pursuing that purity. Let us be a people who are protecting our relationship with God. Let us be a people who are for our family and developing that relationship, amen? Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall are some amazing men and women who are part of our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you uh, before you leave. Hey, lastly, you have these little cards inside your program when you came in. We're gonna be, over the next couple weeks, continuing our series in Acts. But then in about mid-January, what's gonna happen is we really felt like the Lord was calling us to do a series on priorities. The reality is what your priority, what you set your priorities to be is what your life is gonna revolve around. And so the question is, as Christ followers, how do we identify the right priorities and how do we pursue them earnestly? And so we're excited for that series. So these cards not only give you the information, but they're there for you to be able to invite somebody that would benefit from that. So other than that, Happy New Year. We'll see you next week.